0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms.
1: Get ready to geek out! The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Mars is everyone's favorite inhabited world, at least in the movies. But Mars really is a top contender for finding life beyond this planet, microbial life, that is. However, one day the red planet might have other inhabitants, namely humans. The private company Mars One wants to land people there by 2026. The catch? It's a one-way trip. Meet a woman who wants to go anyway, how we might look for life when we're there, and why a science fiction writer cautions us about colonizing Mars, even though he wrote the iconic trilogy about how it could be done. We're Mars struck on Big Picture Science. Sure, you like to travel and see exotic new places, but There's travel, and then there's travel.
3: Welcome to the Mars Federal Colony. For your safety and comfort, domes have been installed to protect you from the vacuum outside. Thank you, and enjoy your stay on Mars.
2: Do we have the destination for you? Imagine. Kicking up your heels and a lot of rusty dirt as you relax in a bulky spacesuit on a freezing, flat-as-a-pancake landscape. Watch as dust devils spin in the bitter cold with nary a tree, a bush, or even a clump of low-grade lichen to hinder the view. Unwinding and maybe even losing consciousness with each deep breath of carbon dioxide. Yes, Mars, the perfect escape.
3: And while the Mars travel brochures aren't printed yet and may need a little PR finessing before they are, one private company already has a list of tourists who want to get away from it all for good on the Red Planet, and it claims it will send them by 2026. I'm Molly Bentley.
2: I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers study the origin and nature of life. Big Picture Science steps back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology And in this hour, everyone's favorite inhabited planet just got a little more crowded. The plan to send humans to Mars. Who would go? What might the first settlement look like? And would Martians be waiting for us when we arrive? Plus, science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson's surprising advice for those who are red hot to fly to the red planet. In the private company Mars One announced that it was going to build a spaceship to do by 2026 what governments won't, namely take humans to Mars, The plan was met with energetic eyebrow-raising.
3: Because the questions were endless. How could engineers possibly solve the technical challenges of sending humans safely to Mars? How would they transport all the material needed to build an outpost there? Where would they get the billions of dollars required to carry out such a plan? And how could they possibly do it all in just a couple of decades? And that's just for starters.
2: But whether Mars 1's plan is feasible or just 21st century snake oil, well, it's just too early to tell. But the company found a receptive audience with its offer of a Martian getaway. It tapped into the public's ravenous appetite for adventure and space travel. For a lot of people, we've been Earthbound long enough.
3: When Mars One announced that it was looking for
4: astronauts, more than 200,000 people applied.
2: Eventually, that list was narrowed down to 100.
4: Hi, I'm Laurel Kay. I'm an undergraduate of physics at Duke University I'm in my senior year, and I'm one of the 100 final candidates for the Mars One mission.
2: So while the U.S. Congress debates, as they have recently, whether the moon or Mars should be the next destination for renewed space travel, and with no decision made for either and no commitment to funding at any rate, Laurel Kay isn't waiting for the government to act.
3: She's mapped out her own itinerary for space travel with Mars One, as her travel agent.
2: Now keep in mind that going to Mars isn't quite as simple as going to the moon, and that wasn't simple. Mars is 150 times farther than our familiar nocturnal orb, and you'll want a sea cushion because the Red Planet rocket ride is going to take you about six or seven months.
3: And the return journey? There is no return journey. This is a one-way trip.
4: So ever since I was a very little kid, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. I always asked for telescopes for Christmas, and I've always been into science, and as a physics major, too, I've just been fascinated by space. So when I saw the opportunity to apply, I immediately decided that this was something that I, I wanted to at least consider. In Mars, I see such an immense possibility for advancing science and really just inspiring people around the world to come together and do something amazing, something that's never been done before.
2: Well, tell me a little bit about the Mars One initiative because this isn't a NASA program. It's not a European Space Agency
4: program it's a private program, right? Yes. So private space programs are actually starting to emerge as being potential players in the, the new age of space travel. And I think this is really exciting because instead of a race between countries to plant flags, it's really a united effort by multiple nations to really try and work together to advance science and go beyond where humans have been before. Well, they want to send, I think it's two dozen people to Mars. Now, the
2: intriguing thing here is that you only get a one-way ticket. You're all right with that?
4: Yeah, so I'm 20 and I'm very optimistic that within my lifetime there will be a way to come back but for me this is my dream I think that in a lifetime spent on another planet you could do so much more than you'd be able to do in a very short trip Um, you'd be able to do much more significant amounts of research you'd be able to really have an influence on the settlement um, and building that up and establishing the community that is made there so I think it's a, a really interesting opportunity to be able to go one way.
2: Well, where would you live on Mars? I mean, you said establish a colony, but, mm-hmm. you know, the surface of Mars is a pretty awful place. It's bitterly it cold. It certainly
4: is. <laughs> no,
2: no liquids. Uh, you can't breathe the atmosphere. I mean, you, you know, you got to have some sort of protection there.
4: Yeah. So what we're aiming to do is we're aiming to set up an establishment that will... Half of it will actually be underground, so it'll be shielded from radiation by several meters of dirt, which is equivalent to the protection that we get just from the Earth's atmosphere. We're going to have live plants, and we'll have uh, all sorts of entertainment. So it's definitely not going to be the same um, type of environment that you get on Earth, where you can go outside and see a forest. So
2: you don't mind living in a high-tech dorm. For the rest (laughs) of your life, because that's what we're talking about here.
4: Yeah, no, I think it's just an amazing experience to be there at all.
2: Now, Mars One has had many thousands of applicants, I believe. Mm -hmm. And now they've narrowed the selection down to, what, 100? And you're among those?
4: Yeah. So they had actually over 200,000 applicants, which to me was surprising that so many people expressed interest in a one-way mission to Mars. They narrowed it down um, at the beginning of last year, in January of last year, to just over 1,000 applicants. And since then, it has been reduced to 100. This group of 100 will be further reduced probably later this year to just 24.
2: So what did you have to show them? Laura, what did you have to prove to them to be in this uh, top 100
4: list? It started with just a simple video and series of essay questions. So that was really just to show them who you were, potentially what your strengths were, what your weaknesses were, why you really wanted to go, because that's a very important question, and to give them a sense of your personality and possibly your, your intelligence, your capability. So that was the first round. And then from there, we had to do a health check. So we had to make sure that we qualified based off of being healthy, normally functioning, physically fit individuals. And then after that, we answered questions again about ourselves so that they got a better idea of who we were, um, and how we react in certain scenarios.
2: Well, let me follow up on that a little bit, because there have been studies in the past when people have considered rockets that might go to the stars, where you, Mm -hmm. you know, generation ships, as they're occasionally called, where, (laughs) you know, you'd have people living on these rocket ships, and uh, they would spend, I don't know, thousands of years getting to some some other planetary system. Uh And one of the big barriers is the fact that when you have a small group of people, they get on one another's nerves. Mm-hmm. The crew breaks down into cliques. They become aggressive. The men start fighting over the women, whatever. And <laughs> and, and, the, and the projection is it's a bad scene, one that ends in catastrophe.
4: Yeah. So that's definitely a serious concern. But that's a concern that we have 10 years to address. We're going to be putting the candidates in groups of four. And those four will be placed in those groups based off of their personality and compatibility. So those groups will undergo simulation missions where they will be together uh, in groups of four for months at a time and see how they they behave. And it'll try and simulate exactly the kinds of conditions. So there will be a time delay in communication between that group and the outside world. They'll have to um, solve realistic problems together. And... Based off of those studies and those practices, we can start to get a good idea of how they'll work together, what will work, and what won't work, because it certainly would not be a good idea to send four people off to Mars together who are not going to get along.
2: All right. Laurel, you're a young woman. You're still in college. Yes. If this actually happens, you'll be leaving everything and everyone you know never to come back. Is your family okay with this? Are your friends okay with this? Are you okay with
4: this? (laughs) So my family is certainly worried, and they're worried about my safety. Um, And that's so understandable. I'm worried about my safety, too. However, this mission uh, seeks to test all of the technologies on the unmanned missions before they send the manned mission. And they'll be using the same launch and landing technologies. So if all of those go successfully, that's eight missions altogether that occur before the human mission. So I think that's That'll really settle everybody's fears. And other than that, they're very excited. I've been getting so many questions and comments, and they're all very positive, really, from my friends and family. I think they're all just very excited and very proud that I've made it this far. And honestly, I am too. I, I hadn't expected to make it this far, and it's just been great.
2: Laurel Kay, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you.
3: Laurel Kay is a senior in the physics department at Duke University, and she plans to go to graduate school before going to Mars.
2: Well, you know, the one thing we can expect in interplanetary travel is uh, the unexpected.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for choosing Space Y. We'll start by boarding everyone in Group 1. After that, we'll take parents with young children. Please do check your ticket. Oh,
5: please don't seat me next to the crying baby. Not the crying baby.
3: Then we'll be taking Group 2. After that, volunteers for airlock seating.
5: This is exciting. I've read all the books. Ray Bradbury, Kim Stanley Robinson, and the revised spectroscopic tables for the Martian atmosphere. Oh, and I have Tim Burton's Mars attacks on my phone. I am ready to colonize.
3: We know that you don't have many choices in interplanetary travel. In fact, you only have one. But we're glad that you've chosen space Y.
5: Let's see, I'm in row 784Q. I wonder if that's an aisle seat.
3: Be sure to securely stow your carry-on. Remember our limit of 22 bags under the seat in front of you. Ask a space attendant for help when we arrive at the... planet.
5: Wait, what did she say about the number of bags? Does my hydroponic terrarium count as a bag or a personal item?
3: Please take your seats. We'll require that you remain in them until we our ballistic trajectory.
5: Wait, what'd she say? You'd think for this kind of long distance flight and the price of this ticket, they'd have a better PA system. All right, let me secure my cross the chest restraint.
3: For those of you who are Space Y preferred members, you will qualify for free Wi-Fi service for the first 30 seconds of the flight while we're close to earth.
5: Hey, how's it going? Hi there. These seats are kind of snug, huh? Yeah. Hey, how about every other week we alternate who gets the armrest? That's a good plan. I can do that for seven months. <laughs> yeah, but what are we going to do for the <laughs> oh, shoot. other? I knew I'd get a seat behind the crying baby. Uh, what did you say? Well, I just said that... Also,
3: space Y preferred members will earn 3,200,456,733 miles on this flight. That's
5: like 15 times as many miles. I should have signed up to be space preferred. preferred.
3: A reminder, G-forces will be a little unpleasant for the first two minutes of this trip. Once we get above the ionosphere, you'll feel better. But this would be the time to take anti-nausea pills if you have them.
5: <laughs> that's a good idea. You want some of these? Personally, I don't need any anti-nausea pills, but I did stock up on SPF 5000 sunblock. No ozone in the Martian atmosphere. <laughs>
2: Well, you are a cautious guy, since you'll only be seeing Mars for a couple of hours. What? I mean, maybe you'll catch a couple of rays, but usually we don't during a flyby. Why would we fly by Mars before landing? Well, this is a non-stop flight. And a good thing, too, because I really hate it when you have to change at Jupiter. Jupiter? This is a flight to the Red Planet. Uh, No, to the Dwarf Planet. Although... Technically, it's actually not a planet because... Pluto? This
5: ship is bound for Pluto?
3: And Space Y welcomes you to flight 170 to Pluto. Now, please switch your personal electronic devices to rocket mode. Our captains advise us that travel time will be nine and a half years, but if we get a tail solar wind, we're hoping to cut that down to 8.9.
5: I better text my wife and let her know I'll be home later than I thought. Ah!
2: Let us make time fly for you here on Earth. Where would you hunt for life on Mars? One scientist gives us his idea, then later in the show, science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson's advice for aspiring Mars-bound travelers.
3: We're all a little Mars struck on Big Picture Science.
2: when most people think of biology beyond Earth, they don't think humans, although, as we've heard, that may change if we colonize space. Nope, more often, most people think Martian. Now, Martian long ago became a synonym for alien. Mars was, and it remains, a favorite place to look for and even to expect extraterrestrial life.
3: So, in the 1970s, NASA sent two landers, Viking 1 and Viking 2, to the Red Planet, where their job was to look for life. It was an exciting project, hopes were high, and one of the mission scientists, astronomer Carl Sagan, was exuberant when he speculated that the landers would not just find simple plants, but something that would creep and crawl.
2: But after landing, well, the first pictures were not so encouraging.
6: There certainly are no features, to the best of my knowledge, in these pictures which have to be due to life. no obvious bushes, trees, or anybody else. In my view, it doesn't exclude uh, the possibility even of larger organisms elsewhere on the planet any more than landing at a random place on a desert and not seeing anything would give you a reliable extension to
3: the rest of the planet
2: but the spacecraft didn't find life, any life, not for sure anyway. And now, 40 years later, there really aren't any rovers or orbiters that are actually hunting for red planet residents.
3: This may come as a surprise to some, so it's worth repeating. We have no hardware on Mars looking for life, even though the red planet is our best bet for housing it, according to some. And for you fans of the moons Europa and Enceladus, well, we can hear you shaking your heads at that statement.
2: Okay, so instead of packing for Mars, have scientists sent their hopes for Mars packing? No, most haven't. But they're not going for the long bomb. They're no longer hoping that a single heroic mission to hunt for evidence of biology will succeed.
3: Our approach to finding Martian life is more restrained than it once was. We're not sending anything to look for it directly, but to paw through the landscape and try to find out where life might reside. And not just life that might be there today, but life that might have been any time in Mars 45 Billion year past.
2: Just about every hominid I know was riveted by the dramatic landing of the Curiosity rover in 2012. It's now rolling through Gale Crater, which we think was once a lake. There are sedimentary rocks all over the place, many of them piled up in a central peak called Mount Sharp. Well, Curiosity is going to climb Mount Sharp. Why? Because it's there? Well, no. The rover is making the trek in order to sample rocks that were formed in water. Curiosity is our current best bet to finger places where past life might be found.
3: Alfonso Davila knows that Mars is a formidable environment. There's no water pooling and puddling anymore, and the atmosphere is bone dry and mostly carbon dioxide. But Mars was once a kinder, gentler place. So Dr. Davila explores environments here on Earth that might resemble the way Mars used to be. His work takes him to Antarctica and to Chile's Atacama Desert, both of which are earthly analogs to the Red Planet.
2: And he recognizes that the failure of the Viking landers may have discouraged those who were hoping to find the Martians and find them quickly, but Dr. Davila also thinks he knows how he could find life. Okay, Alfonso, first, remind us, how many times have we sent
7: hardware to Mars to look for life? Well, sadly, we've only done it once, and that was a long time ago in the 1970s. And that was the Viking missions. They had this sole task of finding life on Mars. They did other things, but they definitely searched for life and they didn't find any. And uh, that so far has been our only attempt despite finding life and searching for life is a big priority in our goals, but we've only done it once.
2: So this was only really attempted once. We've had a lot of landers, rovers, motorized skateboards outfitted with instruments moving around the red planet, but they're, they're looking at geology, they're looking at hydrology, looking for traces of water, but they're not actually looking for life. Is any of that due to the fact that it wasn't found in the mid-1970s? Or did they just decide,
7: look, it's much harder to find it? Absolutely. I call it the Viking syndrome. In the 1970s, expectations were so high and results were so negative that the consequence was everybody's balloon was deflated after the Viking mission. And it took the community many, many years to recover from that. In fact, a lot of people still advocate the experience with the Viking to turn down any big ideas about searching for life on Mars. They don't want to repeat the same negative results. But probably one of the consequences of the Viking mission was that for 20, 30 years, the mood on the search for life changed and also the strategy on how to search for life. Well, that
2: strategy is. Tell me what that strategy is, because we've got, you know, the Curiosity rover is on Mars, and and some of the other rovers are still operating. We've got orbiters. The Europeans have orbiters. There's there's an awful lot of high-tech hardware at the Red Planet, and it's not looking for life. But what is it doing that's a good
7: strategy? That's right. So the strategy today is uh, first go around the question of Mars. First, we want to know if there were conditions on Mars that would be conducive to life. We want to make that clear in the first term. Okay, there was liquid water. Follow the water. That's been the mantra for the last couple of decades. We've established that there was a lot of water in the past on Mars. Now we want to understand whether the water was habitable. Could microbes from Earth live in that water? MSL is doing that and effectively is showing that when there was water on Mars, microbes from Earth could have lived there. It was habitable. And now the logical next step is to, okay, if the water was there and it was habitable, was there life on Mars? Let's look for the evidence of it. Now, so it's been a, it's a three-step approach rather than a direct approach looking for the microbes themselves.
2: Okay, suppose we put you in charge of the Mars program for NASA. Maybe you're already in charge of the NASA. No no, 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 no. Okay, I just want to <laughs> rule that out. Just <laughs> Pulled out your business card there. All right, so we put you in charge of the Mars program, and we say, look, the public is not interested in mineral-bearing rocks or or the fact that there's hydrates here or I don't know, whatever, that there was maybe some liquid water here. What they want to know is, did Mars ever have life? Does it have life today? What would you do? What experiment would you do to find life quickly?
7: So what I would do is, and this is uh, something based on our experience, studying places on Earth that are similar to Mars, very dry, very cold deserts on Earth, which uh, somehow resemble Mars. What we've learned in those places is that life is not everywhere in those environments. Life goes to very specific places which allow them to survive the very dry and very cold conditions. Those are, for example, the inside of rocks. Rocks like salt rocks or sediments. Microbes find their way into the rocks, and inside the rocks they find protective conditions or they find more water. The rock protects them against radiation, protects them against Mm -hmm. the wind and erosion, a lot better than the soils, for example. So if we extrapolated this to Mars, if there was any life on Mars today, probably life on Mars wouldn't be everywhere. It would only be on a number of very selective spots. So I would target those spots based on our experience on Earth. And if it's not there, it shouldn't be anywhere else. So if I was in charge, I would say go here, go there, maybe go there. And if it's not in these three places, you can pack or you can start looking for other stuff, but life is not on Mars.
2: That's very interesting. You say water on the inside of rocks. You know, when I think of a rock,
7: I don't think of it as having water inside. No, and uh, microbes figured that out way before us. There is some rocks which uh, actually themselves provide the water. That's an example of what happens in the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is the driest desert on Earth. And the only place where we find life in the driest parts of that desert is the inside of rocks which are made of salt. And the salt itself picks up water vapor from the atmosphere and brings it into the rock and turns it into liquid and then the microbes in the rock can use that liquid water for survival. Salts are very good at doing that, not other rocks. Another example, in the dry valleys of Antarctica, there is a different type of rock. It's a sediment rock. That rock doesn't pick up water from the atmosphere, but snow accumulates on top of that rock every now and then. And despite Antarctica is very cold, the sand in the summer days, it warms up the rock, and when the rock heats up like an oven, it melts the snow, and the snow goes into the rock, percolates into the rock, and then the microbes in the rock pick up that liquid water. So it's the rock itself, the physical properties of the rock, that one way or another provide the liquid water that microbes need. There is nothing to suggest that they would be living microbes on Mars today. There are many reasons why they shouldn't be living on there today. The conditions are really nasty on the surface of Mars, the radiation, the temperature, the dryness and everything. But conditions were better in the past and not that far ago. Uh, maybe tens of millions of years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, then life could have existed and being active on the surface of Mars. And what we would find today in those rocks would be the remnants, the dead bodies, so to speak, of those microbes, which still would give us a lot of information. Uh, they would tell us what they breathed, what they ate, how they reproduced. Did they have a genetic code like ours, like DNA, or was, was it different? That type of information we can still extract from dead Martian microbes. But if we were to find them,
2: even if we were to find microbes that have been dead for 100 million years, that still
7: would be important and exciting, would it not? It would be a watershed event. It would be a phenomenal scientific result, also with social and philosophical implications. Now, the amount of excitement would be also dependent on what we find, and that also has to do with what we look for. There many ways microbes can leave behind traces of their presence. On Earth, we have evidence of life which is 3.5 billion years old, Uh, but that evidence is in the form of rocks, rocks with certain shapes and sizes and forms and compositions that indicate that there were microbes back then. But the rocks don't tell us much about the microbes. We don't know what color they had, how big they were, what did they uh, use for food, how did they reproduce. The same could apply on Mars. If we find the same rocks, that would tell us that there were microbes on Mars at some point, but they they wouldn't tell us much more than that. If we look for things that are more informative of the fundamental properties of life, like, for example, on Earth, finding DNA tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us that every life on Earth is the same from the genetic point of view. We all have DNA in our systems, a macro and an elephant. Uh, If we find proteins, we see that every protein from every organism on Earth is made of the same type of compounds. There is a universality to life on Earth. That's the kind of information we extract from these compounds. If we find the same or similar compounds on Mars, they would tell us so much more about Martians that we could possibly learn from looking at rocks. I always use the example of a book. Looking for a fossil on Earth, on Mars, anywhere else, is like finding the covers of a book. It tells you that there was a book, maybe tells you the title of the book and how big it was, but it doesn't tell you much more. Finding biochemical compounds, DNA, or anything like these proteins. Those are the pages. That's what's between the covers. A lot of information, a lot of words in there that we can learn. Alfonso Davila, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
3: Alfonso Davila is a senior scientist at the SETI Institute.
2: Carl Sagan was always a glass-full kind of guy when it came to Mars. In the 1970s, just before NASA launched the Viking landers, Dr. Sagan was enthusiastic, and he conveyed his excitement to the public. Martians were about to be discovered.
3: But that didn't happen. Mars turned out to be a tougher, crueler environment than we imagined. Carl Sagan's glass was not just half-empty. It was totally empty. Mars was dry, and most of its atmosphere had disappeared into space. But why? Steve Brecht is a physicist who studies planetary atmospheres.
2: Steve, anybody can look at the pictures we've made of Mars from up close, and we see all these uh, canyons and
6: gullies and things like that, but no water in them now. Was there once a lot of water on Mars? Well, that's still a subject of debate. I mean, there's still a group of people who think that Mars never had much water, if any, on it. It was always cold and always, you know, fairly thin atmosphere and very dry. Then there's another group of people, and I think being persuaded by the more data that's coming back from Mars, that Mars did in fact have a water inventory of a significant amount and that perhaps the atmosphere was much more extensive than it is now. So
2: so Mars could have been a kinder, gentler world. Yes,
6: it could have been. Okay.
2: Well, so – what is our interest in actually knowing whether there was more water there? Clearly there's this, the, the thought that there might have been Martians well, or more I think, Martians. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I think there's two, there's two things here. One is if there was water on Mars, is there still some water trapped, let's say, below the surface, for example? So if we sent a manned mission to Mars, would it be an environment that if it had its local water, you could survive on the planet or, you know, certainly within space station type of arrangement? there with having the resources locally instead of having to bring them from Earth. That would be the major thing. From a life standpoint, I think the kicker is is that if there's water on Mars and it, you know, the planet temperatures are similar to Earth, then there might well have been life that we would recognize. That's kind of an interesting codicil because it's possible that you might run into a life form that you really wouldn't recognize at all because it's different chemistry, different biology, different metabolism. I mean, If it has a heartbeat every thousand years, we're not going to know it is life. (laughs) It's tough to take a pulse. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that it would be easier if it's something we would recognize. And certainly if it's a water-based life form like we are, we could identify that more easily.
2: All right. So there are two reasons for wanting to know about the water. Mm -hmm. One, you know, maybe there was life, more life, whatever. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if we're going to inhabit Mars in any future scenario the water would be really handy to have nearby. very much so they would really
6: appreciate it cuz that's a lot of weight you have to carry up there
2: <laughs> okay all right but you know you can't help but look at these pictures of of the martian topography today and say man clearly there was a lot more water than is locked up in the you know the ice caps today right. uh we don't know i suppose what's below the surface but you know kind of naively you would say well you know mars it's a small planet it doesn't have so very much gravity. It's probably, what, three times less gravity than Earth, something like that. And so maybe it just all, you know, evaporated away. I mean,
6: where could the water have gone? Well, there's three or four possibilities. One is, of course, some of them went underground and got frozen and still there, some of it got tied up in minerals of some sort. In other words, it's a red planet. It's iron oxide on the surface. Just rust. It's just rust. You know, it's not very deep, but it's rust. The other is that the atmosphere itself, you just lose the neutral atmosphere because of just the lack of gravity and and the temperature. But the other possibility is because you have an ionosphere, because you have the input from the sun, the ultraviolet from the sun hitting it, you create an ionosphere. At that, those ionized oxygen or O2 plus are much more easily removed than just diffusion. You can dynamically remove them from the planet. So that looks like one of the more energetic ways of removing the atmosphere from Mars, and hence the water.
2: Okay, well, let me see if I understand this then. You're saying that, okay, Mars doesn't have an ozone layer to protect its surface from uh, the
6: ultraviolet light coming out of the sun, so the ultraviolet light may break up some of the water molecules? That's part of it. I mean, it's a very complicated chemistry process. It may have been disassociated down below. We don't know the answer to that. All we can measure is what we see coming off of Mars now with the spacecraft, and that's why we're trying to do these simulations, so that if we can match the present-day data and understand the variations, the functional dependencies, then we could go back into earlier epochs where people are hypothesizing that the atmosphere was much more extensive and there was more water and then make an estimate from that. Would that explain the loss of water?
2: What about some of these other ideas about how you might get rid of the water? I mean, not that you want to, but mm-hmm. get rid of the water on Mars, like, uh, you know, in the early days of the solar system, uh, there was a collision with a, you know, a big rock, a big asteroid, and just stripped away part of the atmosphere, and it just all went bye-bye.
6: It certainly could have. I mean, there's, energetically, when you talk about the impacts of the size that you you see on the bigger craters on Mars, that could have had a very significant effect. It's not we just don't know the answers to some of these things uh, because you, you don't know how fast everything was moving. But I, I, will, I will point out to you that like, uh, the, the comet, the Shoemaker-Levy impacts on Jupiter, they were moving at, uh, oh, I think 50 kilometers a second, which is you know, many, many thousands of miles per hour. But, but the point was each of those chunks of ice was six, seven million times more energetic than any nuclear weapon we've ever set off millions of times more energetic. There's that much more energy in just a ball of ice that's a kilometer wide moving at 50 kilometers. Wow. So there's so enough energy to strip off some of the atmosphere. You can, you can make happen. a big mess of things, that's for sure. <laughs> now, you might have brought stuff with you, too. That's the other half of the deal is that you bring in stuff, too, and you yeah. vaporize stuff. So, you, yeah, you may have blown off what's there, but you may have replaced it with something else, like even water depending on what it was made of.
2: So the comets uh, giveth, but they also taketh away. Yeah, and that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Who wins on that deal? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, finally, just looking to the future, people talk about, you know, colonizing Mars, uh, maybe not this generation, but sometime in the future we might do that. And one of the things you'd want to do, if you could, is restore Mars' atmosphere to something that you could tolerate by walking outside without a space suit. In other words, Mm -hmm. make it a lot thicker, put in some oxygen, whatever. Um... A, is that feasible? And B, if you did it, would, you know, maybe the solar wind just strip it away from you anyhow?
6: Well, it will continue to strip it away. I mean, we are not shutting the sun off, or we're really in trouble. Uh, there is actually ways. I mean, they're pretty far out in the sense that, to the best of my knowledge, they've noted that some of the asteroids in the asteroid belt are water. And they're, so to speak, uphill gravitationally from Mars. So if you were to bring them down into, onto the planet or even impact them on the planet, you may well be able to replace a fair amount of atmosphere and, and uh, water on the system. So there's, there's hope for this project. Who knows? <laughs> it's kind of fun. I will say this. Our knowledge level has gone up enormously in this last 40 or 50 years. Okay. So, you know, who knows?
2: <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to consider buying some real estate on Mars. Stephen Breck, thank you so very much for
6: speaking with us today. Oh, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it thoroughly.
3: Steve Brecht is a physicist and president of the Bay Area Research Corporation. He studies planetary atmospheres. And
2: there are at least two experiments that are going on to try to find out, A, what happened to most of Mars's air, and B, how much water was on the surface anyhow. Now, for the first, we have MAVEN. That's NASA's Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution mission. And its job is uh, to orbit the red planet and try and find out, you know, where did the atmosphere go? There was
3: obviously more in the past where to go. And ground-based telescopes have recently discovered that Mars may have had a huge ocean with at least as much water as our Arctic Ocean.
2: That would be a stunning result because that ocean would cover as much of Mars proportionately as the Atlantic covers on Earth. And if that ocean were there for millions, maybe billions of years, well, maybe something cooked up in it. Nonetheless, it certainly sounds like Mars salad days are behind it. You know, the era when it had a thicker atmosphere and plenty of water on the surface. But could we resuscitate Mars? Could we turn it into a more desirable hunk of real estate, uh,
3: livable human outpost? Now, that's the kind of bold plan that you'd think author Kim Stanley Robinson would support. After all, he wrote a trilogy that describes in detail colonizing and terraforming the Red Planet. So, why isn't this
2: visionary on board with the plans of Mars One? He's next. We don't
3: know what it
1: is, but we're Mars struck on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. Scientists and engineers have thought long and hard about going to Mars,
2: but fiction writers have already taken us there.
8: I'm Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm a science fiction writer who wrote Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars, and I live in California.
2: Few writers have given going to Mars and staying there the detailed thought that he has. His award-winning Mars trilogy describes the settlement and terraforming of Mars over two centuries. The colony that it produces is a kind of enlightened utopia.
3: And so Kim Stanley Robinson's idea of what it will be like on Mars is not vague. In fact, it's even hopeful. And yet, in real life, this visionary writer is more circumspect about real plans to make Mars a home away from Earth. And he has surprising advice for those who are red-hot to travel to the red planet, including the Mars One hopeful we heard from earlier in the show, Laurel Kay.
2: Stan, there are few people who have thought more about humankind's future interactions with Mars than you. Now, in your trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, you describe how our children, our grandchildren, are going to turn the red planet into a world that uh, we don't just want to visit, we inhabit. Did you think that was inevitable when you wrote these books?
8: Well, yes, I did. The information that I had came from the 1980s and was mostly information from the Viking landers and from satellite views of earth from earth and mars at that point looked to be dead and not having any life of its own and it looked like it had enough of all of the volatiles and chemicals necessary for human life and it didn't look like there was anything poisonous on the surface since i wrote those books all three of those assumptions that i made have been questioned and so um i think it's no longer a simple matter and it's possible that we could occupy inhabit and terraform Mars, but I think it's probably going to take a lot longer than I described in my books.
2: So are you saying that Mars seems a little bit less attractive now than when you wrote the trilogy?
8: Yes. As it's been explained to me by the planetary scientists at NASA Ames, there's much less nitrogen on Mars than there should be if there had been an ordinary distribution through the solar system in the original planetary accretion. This is still mysterious but it apparently exists and we really need nitrogen so that's one problem. Another problem is there could be indigenous bacterial life down in the basement regolith which is to say like a kilometer underground or 100 meters underground and that's going to be very hard to disprove. Um, So when we go there, we may be intruding on alien life. And then lastly, the surface is covered by perchlorates, which are um, poisonous to humans in the parts per billion range. And the Viking lander didn't reveal that. It's since been revealed by our subsequent landers. And now those perchlorates could be changed into something more benign to humans by introducing a surface bacteria of our own to eat them and process them because they're basically salts, but that would take a long time. So these are new stoppers that I didn't know about when I wrote my books.
2: Now, according to the first book in the series, Red Mars, 100 colonists will be landing on Mars in about 2026, roughly a decade from now. That date eerily agrees with the projection of the Mars One project, which is intended to put colonists on Mars. Why that time frame? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of history behind us, and suddenly these time frames all seem to match.
8: Well, but they don't really because I was assuming from about 1990 when I began to make my assumptions and began to set down the timeline of my books, and I was assuming that means 36 years of vigorous work on getting to Mars, setting up an infrastructure robotically, and preparing for the trip uh, and by understanding how to get humans there. Well, none of that has happened. So really, we're still 36 years out.
2: In other words, uh, you think the timeline of Mars One is not necessarily realistic?
8: I don't think it's realistic.
2: Earlier in the show, we heard from Laurel Kay, and she's a young woman who uh, has signed up for the Mars One project, wants to go. She's among the 100 finalists. Any advice you would give her?
8: Well, you could lock yourself in a room for six months and then come out and and think it over.
2: (laughs) You think that that would be good practice for what's going to happen en route?
8: Yes, on there. Once you get there, you need to stay 30 feet underground so that the radiation that isn't being stopped by the atmosphere, because there's hardly any atmosphere there, um, would be very bad for you. So the first settlers, as in my Red Mars, have to set up a shelter that is uh, protected by uh, 30 feet of of regolith, of rock. So then trips outdoors would be infrequent and be a specialized thing, like, like they're practicing through the little imitation Mars lander that's in the Utah desert and up in the high Arctic. So there are complications. And I have to say, I myself spent four days at the South Pole, which is as close as I've been to kind of what life would be like on another planet. It was ice planet, but it was extremely difficult to go outside. So that was like four days trapped in a Motel 6, and I I lost all desire to leave Earth.
2: But Stan, in your first book, Red Mars the colonists do go there. I think you send, I don't know, 100 people or something like that. There's got to be some incentive for them to do that other than sightseeing. So what would be the incentive to colonize the red planet?
8: Well, I think the best analogy is Antarctica. Again, it's beautiful. It's scientifically interesting. It teaches us things about the earth, the totality of the earth as a planet that we couldn't learn anywhere else and the same things are true of Mars. When we go there, it will not only be beautiful and exciting as an adventure, as an exploration, it will also be doing comparative planetology. It will teach us things about Earth that we really need to know, because we're now inadvertently in charge of the Earth's biosphere. We have to steward it. We have to do stuff that right now we don't know how to do in order to make a sustainable interaction for over the long term with this planet of ours. So going to Mars is a way of studying Earth, and that's its importance.
2: Do you really think that? Because uh, what you're saying here is that, okay... Mars is going to start as an outpost. We'll have a—I don't know—a couple dozen, couple hundred people there. But you know, in the book at least, eventually Mars becomes more than just a high-tech fort on the frontier. You know, you start sending lots of people there. You really encourage emigration. You—you you don't look at it that way anymore.
8: Right. I think that the time scales are off, and that my Mars trilogy was one way of talking about the problems that we have on Earth. In other words, a kind of allegory. In the real history, what I think is until we get um, space elevators that make getting off planets easier on both Earth and Mars, the problems of just getting that much weight into space and across between the two planets are prohibitive. And also, we've got 7 billion people on this planet and might get 9 billion, maybe even 10. There's no possibility that Mars can serve as any kind of Escape valve for that situation. In other words, we have to make a reconciliation on this planet. There is no Planet B. Mars, even Mars, as close as it is to us, the terraforming of it is too long term. It's really thousands of years, and we only have decades to get it together here.
2: All right, so Mars is a tough environment. You solve that in the books, of course, with terraforming. In other words, turning Mars into something that's a little bit more like the Earth so you can step outside without putting on that spacesuit. how did you envision that happening
8: well I followed the scientists in this Uh, this is sort of a Carl Sagan thing right when they were discovering what Mars was really like with Mariner and Viking the planetary scientists were beginning to investigate the idea of terraforming of what would it take and it turned out that Mars is like one of the best candidates you could possibly imagine it's nearby it's got a fair amount of gravity it's got a lot of water it's got all the volatiles we didn't know that it's a little short on nitrogen So um, it's basically application of heat, and one good terraformer, Martin Fogg, suggested um, literally hundreds or thousands of thermonuclear bombs set off so deep that their radiation was trapped, but that their heat dispersed through the Martian lithosphere and began to melt that water that's frozen now on Mars. And slowly but surely, you begin to release the volatiles and create an atmosphere that has some oxygen in it that overwhelms the CO2 that is almost all that is the atmosphere there now. So terraforming is, is basically engineering its application of heat. There's no magic involved. And you introduce all the genomes from Earth, so we already have the biological components of it ready to unleash on Mars. And so you could recapitulate evolution perhaps a million times faster than evolution, but that still leaves you with, um, you know, centuries of time that would, it would take place. I still think it may happen. It's a viable project, and it would be so exciting and so interesting that if we do create a sustainable civilization on Earth and feel confident that we're not wrecking this planet, then it might be the next great project. But it can only follow on the first great project, which is sustainability here.
2: One of the arguments made for the eventual colonization of Mars and actually moving a lot of people there is to look at history, for example, the opening of the New World during the 16th century. That had some benefits in the old world. It uh, provided an escape valve for the oppressed, and medieval serfdom disappeared. Bob Zubrin, an advocate for missions to Mars, says that the Red Planet could do this for the entire Earth and stop the growth of autocratic government here. Do you see this as an essential thing, that we need a new frontier?
8: No, I think that's a completely false analogy. I think that uh, Mars does not exist in a relationship to Earth like the New World did to the Old World. For one thing, the New World was occupied about 13,000 years ago by human beings coming over from Alaska. So they were already here, and they got badly um, devastated. So the New World uh, was not entirely a positive development. The inhabitation by people from uh, mainly Europe and Africa was not entirely a positive development for the locals already here. Now, in Mars, that doesn't exist, but there's just the problem of getting across there and what you've got when you get there. It's poisonous. There's no atmosphere. You'd have to terraform it first. The thousands of years it would take to terraform versus the decades that we have with our current problems means that this is just a fantasy and a bad historical analogy. And and um, I just have a very uh, profound disagreement with Zubrin's analogy to the European colonization of the New World. That's not what Mars is about.
2: Stan Robinson, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
8: Pleasure, Seth,
3: always. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars, and he lives in California. So what we've heard in the show is that Mars is still a very attractive place for the public, despite everything we're learning about the planet.
2: Yeah, When you look at the history, 100 years ago, Mars was extremely attractive. We thought there were canals there, after all. Some some people did. It was the planet that was a cousin of the Earth, right? And then Viking lands there in the 1970s. It's dead, Jim. You know, big disappointment there. And then it turns out, very little atmosphere, no water. And now we have various spacecraft that are trying to find out why. Why did this planet
3: that was supposed to be so much like Earth turn out not to be very much like Earth at all. But the spacecraft may still turn up surprises about the planet. We don't know for certain that there's no life there, that there was never life there, right? And there's the recent discovery that Mars had an ocean that was proportionally the size of the Arctic Ocean.
2: Well, that's interesting because if that ocean really was there and it was there for a long time, something could very easily have cooked up in there. So, yeah, the idea that there might be life on Mars, there was life on Mars, that's still, if you will, viable. Uh, and I also think that the idea that we will eventually go
3: to Mars, colonize Mars, I think that's still viable too and And, in fact we we heard from a young woman who is willing to say goodbye to everything on Earth to do that, despite this portrait that we're painting of Mars, which is not such an attractive place to travel to.
2: Yeah, and I think that Kim Stanley Robinson, who after all knows a lot about Mars, even though what he was writing was fiction, uh, you know, he points that out, that Mars is tougher than you think it is. It's easy to say we're just going to go to Mars. You look at the pictures, it looks like Arizona without the cacti, but it's not. And I think that's the point he's making. Yeah, eventually, eventually, but
3: it's going to be tough. Well, his other point is that we have a planet that we need to take care of here before we go to a planet elsewhere in the solar system.
2: Well, I don't know about before, but we certainly need to take care of
1: our own planet.
3: Thanks to a Mars-velous production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
2: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to Mars Struck. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it in our Big Picture Science archive, which is on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
2: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because a set of earbuds mars your appearance, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion? Throw them into an email and send it to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Oh, God, when are we going to be there? Nine years, give or take. We've been flying
0: an hour. Sick of being upsold at gyms?